But for many people, the definition of a Christian is, as I said earlier on, a person who goes to church, someone who goes to church. And on the whole, of course, it's true. Christians do go to church. Um, It's a fact, they do. And as I said earlier again, someone like me, who was brought up in the church, right from my mother's arms, you know, I was taken to church, I don't know how early, but almost immediately after I was born, as far as I'm aware, uh, and have uh, hardly ever missed a Sunday since. Um, And who is a Christian as well, you may assume that being a Christian is equal to, goes along with being a regular churchgoer. But as I also said, my becoming a Christian was actually nothing to do with going to church. It happened, as I said, in a field uh, on the Isle of Wight one night in the dark, um, nowhere near a church. Um, It was an encounter between God, the Lord, and myself. So I want to try and unravel these two concepts this afternoon. The concepts of being a Christian, what being a Christian is, and the church, what the church is. And we're going to do that by looking at three different verses in the Bible that talk about the church. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to do, uh, commit the first crime of um, Bible exposition and take three verses out of context, which you're not supposed to do. Uh, but if you read the New Testament and look at the verses that uh, are used, the Old Testament verses that are used, they're often used out of context. Uh, Paul uses verses here, there and everywhere to prove his point. Um, so I'm going to do the same this afternoon, I'm afraid. So our first verse then is Ephesians uh, chapter 3. I'm going to do two verses from Ephesians. I'm sorry if I'm going to steal anybody's thunder because I'm doing Ephesians in the coming weeks, but uh, this is how it is. So our first verse is in Ephesians uh, chapter 3. So if we could have the first slide up, please. That's possible. There we go. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10. And that tells us some things about the church. It says his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Well, the first thing we see in this verse about the church is that it's not a building. The church is not a building. Church is mentioned many times in the New Testament, um, but buildings are never mentioned primarily because they didn't have any church buildings in the New Testament. Uh, They mainly met a church in people's homes, um, not in buildings. Buildings didn't appear until um, several decades, if not hundreds of years, after the uh, early church was first founded. So the New Testament never talks about going to church. The New Testament only talks about being the church, not going to church. And so what is involved in being the church? Well, some might say, and many do say, that the church is an an irrelevance today, that it has nothing to say to a modern world, to a modern society. There's a church building that I've visited in Edinburgh, in Scotland, that has a foundation stone in the wall, and I might have got the dates not quite right on this, but it says something like this. It says, this church was built in 1874, but the congregation dates from 1842. That's the end of the quote. Some might say that looking at the congregation, you'd think they did date from 1842. The church building certainly looked like it dated from 1874. It was huge, cold, dark, dank, and had nothing to appeal to you at all for wanting to go there. 
the impression certainly there and perhaps by many other churches is given that the church is old, outdated and irrelevant to modern scientific society. And many people would go even further than that. There's another church building, uh, this time in Croydon in South London, that used to have a notice outside, uh, on the wall outside, that said, this church is dangerous, do not enter. Well, if that doesn't put you off, I don't know what will. And uh, Richard Dawkins, the famous Oxford professor who uh, wants to get rid of Christianity, if he possibly can, says that the church is a dangerous institution and it should be abolished, eradicated, because it is dangerous to society. It brainwashes people to believe in things which don't exist, so he says. Now, actually, that church building was derelict and the only danger was the danger of falling masonry on your head if you happened to go in there. And I belonged to the body, the, pe the people of that church, and we actually met in a church hall down the road. And the church was very much alive, although the building at that stage was derelict. It now has a new building, which is very nice. So what does this verse say about the church then? It says that the church is a cosmic reality. And what do we mean by that? We mean that the church is not just a human institution, although it is that, but it's a spiritual entity. That's what Paul means here, Paul the writer, when he talks about the heavenly realms. It means, he means that the church exists outside of the physical realm where you and I live, but it exists also in the spiritual realm, the heavenly realms as he calls it. And he says that the church demonstrates the wisdom of God to powers in the spiritual world, in the heavenly realms. Now, I don't know if you realise this as members of a church, that you have a very important task in the spiritual realm. You have the task of showing spiritual authorities the wisdom of God. They have got to look at you before they can understand how wise, just and loving God is. Now, we as Christians, those of us who call ourselves Christians, already know that there is a spiritual world. We know there's a God who is good and holy. We know there's a devil who is bad and evil. And we know that there are other spiritual powers, as Paul says here, and authorities that we cannot see, but whose effects on the world around us can be felt where we live. But Christians are not the only ones who feel uh, the need or, or who know that there, are, that there is a spiritual world. In fact, there's an upsurge today in what we might call popular spirituality. People want to be spiritual or call themselves spiritual. People try in many ways to attempt to get access to the spiritual world. They try horoscopes, they try tarot cards, meditation, spirit channeling and all sorts of other fanciful ways of getting in touch with the spiritual world. Most people would say that they hope that their deceased ones have gone to a better place, they will say that. Although if you talk to them about a heaven where God is king and Jesus Christ rules, they will poo-poo that and say, well, don't believe in that. Many people will talk of out-of-body experiences, of feeling loved ones close to them even though they're far away, or even of seeing spiritual beings, ghosts or angels and the like. 
And many people say they are spiritual people. I read a, an interview uh, with Callum Best, the son of the famous uh, footballer George Best, the uh, Manchester United and Ireland footballer. His son, Callum Best, in an interview, described himself as a spiritual person. He says, I'm a spiritual person. Now, I don't know what he meant by that, because his life apparently largely has mirrored his father's life. One of drink, women and parties for the most part, as far as one can understand. But he described himself as a spiritual person. He had a, some sort of insight that there was a world outside the physical world, a spiritual world. Now, if people want to access this spiritual world, and many people do, how are they going to do it? And what this verse tells us from Ephesians is that the only sure way into the spiritual realm is actually through the church. Because the church is the bridge, as I've put there, between the physical world, where it is a human institution, and the spiritual world, where it is a demonstration of God's wisdom and power. Now we need to delve a little deeper at this point into what the Bible says about the church. Because just coming to church will not get you access into the spiritual world. In fact, Paul goes on to explain in, in the next verse what he means. He says, uh, this verse, he says he, his intent, God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And then he goes on, according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the church then is the access into the spiritual world because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished already. That's what he says. The church would be nothing, nothing at all, without Jesus as Lord of it. And in fact, individual churches are nothing if Jesus is not Lord in them. At least they're nothing more than a human institution, a bit like a golf club where everybody gets together because they've got a like interest. So the church is only the bridge into the spiritual world because Jesus has already bridged that gap by accomplishing God's purpose for him on the earth. Elsewhere in the Bible, the church is called the body of Christ. Now our bodies are, are the visible part of us. There's plenty about us that other people can't see. They can't see our thoughts, they can't see our feelings unless we expose them our souls, the essential inner part of us, people cannot see. But our bodies, they can see. They can see our bodies. And so the church, if you like, as the body of Christ, is the part of Christ that the world can see. The bit of, of Jesus, if you like, that is visible to the world. Now, some of us might be here this afternoon because we want to explore the idea of there being a spiritual realm. Uh, I guess most of us here have already done that and uh, are believers. But if we're not, if there are any here who are not, you may be feeling, well, I want to get in touch with this spiritual world. How can I do that? I don't know God. How can I get to know him? And if that is you, and you've come into a church, this church, well, let me say you've come to the right place. Not because this church has all the answers and other churches don't, not because it's a better church necessarily than any other churches. It may well be, I don't know. But simply because the Bible tells us that a church, if Jesus is the Lord of that church, is a bridge into the spiritual world. And I, 
trust and believe that Jesus is Lord of this church. So this church then becomes a visible expression of Christ, of Jesus. And it means that if you come here, our hope is, and I'm sure that the church's hope here is, that you will encounter Jesus Christ, that you will find him here, and that that will lead you to a relationship with God. It's not just coming to the church, it's coming to Jesus that will lead you into the spiritual world. Well, let's move on then to our second verse. And this comes in uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy. We can go on to the next slide. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And here again it's Paul writing and he says, halfway through this verse, he says, the church is God's household, or God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So we're going to explore a little bit more about what the church is then. And he says two things here about the church. He says it's a household and it's a pillar and foundation of truth. So first of all, it's a household. Now please take note of this. The church is not a house. The church is a household. Please do not call a church building God's house. Some people are wont to call that, to do that, to say we're going to God's house to worship. Please don't say that. It was an Old Testament idea to place God in a specific building. Uh, they had to go to the temple in the Old Testament times to meet God. That was the way God had revealed himself and that was the visual aid which he gave the people of Israel. Uh, but it is not, since the coming of Jesus, it is not the way God meets us now. Because when Jesus came, God's promise was fulfilled that God would meet people in their hearts, that he would write their law, his law on their hearts and he would live in them. So instead of having to go to a particular place to meet God, God would meet people in their hearts. Thus the church is a household. It is a community of God's people where God has met people in their hearts. We can see... Uh, how this comes about in the way the word church in our language has changed down the years. Very interesting this. Our word church is derived from a Greek word, kuriakon, which means of the Lord. Of the Lord. And that has nothing to do with buildings at all. Nothing to do with buildings, but everything to do with God's possession. It means people of the Lord. People of the Lord. And when church is mentioned in the New Testament, it's not that word which is translated. It's another word, the word ecclesia, which means gathering or community, a gathering of people. So the church then is a get-together, a gathering of God's people, of people of the Lord. It's a gathering of people of the Lord. And that defines what church is. It's a gathering of people of the Lord. Now we had a family get-together fairly recently, well, a couple of years ago it was now, it was a picnic in Clumber Park. Um, my wife and I invited uh, wide uh, mem members of my family. I, I was brought up with uh, four, uh, three sisters and a brother, so there were five of us in my family. And uh, there were three families in our immediate close family. I had, I had ten first cousins. There were three families. One had six children, we had five children, and my other cousins had four children. 
And so there were 15 of us, first cousins, and we were fairly close. We didn't see each other. We saw each other every Christmas, sometimes in between, but we were close, and we still are. We've kept in contact. And we had a family get-together a couple of years ago, and I invited all the cousins. Of course, we've all got to families of our own now, and there are lots and lots and lots and lots of us now. Um, so we got together in Clumber Park. There were about 20 or 30 of us. Uh, we had a picnic together. Now, we were certainly family when we met together. And there were some there, uh, some of the children, the younger children, who'd never met other members of the family before. And one of the points of this picnic was to get you know, the young ones to know that they're part of a bigger family. Uh, but, and they were. They're part of the family. But we weren't just family when we met for that picnic. We're family all the time, even though we're separated all over the world. I've got a sister and I've got nephews and nieces in Australia. Um, There are others that live in other parts of the world. We are family all the time, not just when we get together. And this is the nature of God's household, the church. It is a community, a family, an ecclesia of God, God's people. And if you want to be in a family... You have to be born into it or adopted into it or possibly marry into it. Those are the only ways, really, into a family. And the Bible uses all of these images, mostly being born or being adopted, as terms for becoming a Christian or coming into God's family. It's no good just turning up to a family gathering and hoping that that will make you part of the family because it won't. You might well be welcomed, I hope you will be. You can take part in the activities, and we had some activities. We had some children's games that day. We went for a walk, and we had a picnic together, and so on. But that doesn't make you part of the family. We're going to look in just a moment how you become a member of the family. But note here, first of all, that to become a member of a family, you have to have a change of status. You have to be born into it, or adopted into it, or marry into it. There has to be a change of status for you to become a member of the family. Now the second thing this verse tells us is the church is a pillar and foundation of truth. And truth these days is a very slippery word. Um, It's a discredited word in our postmodern society. It's almost become... Uh, a word which you're not allowed to use. You're not allowed to stake, state that you know the truth or that you have a, a truth as part of your world view, if you like. You can have religion today, if you like, as long as you don't impose it on anyone else. You can have your religion, and I can have mine, and that's fine. But don't impose yours on me. You can go further than that. You can say, your truth is okay for you, but it's not my truth. My truth is something different. Well, that's utter nonsense if you think about it. How can truth change from one person to another? Something is either true or it is not true. Jesus claimed to be the truth. And either he was or he wasn't. Muhammad claimed to be the true prophet of Allah whoever he is, either he was or he wasn't. Now, none of that means that we don't have to have respect for people with other beliefs. Of course, we do. And we respect their right to believe what they believe. But that doesn't make it true. 
This verse says that the church is the pillar of truth. And it's only the pillar of truth because its Lord is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who claimed to be truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And if you make a claim like that, to be the truth, well, you better back it up. Because you'll look pretty stupid if, if uh, what you say doesn't actually come true. If you say, I am the truth, and it doesn't come true. And Jesus backed up his claim to be the truth by doing what he said he would do. Namely, by rising from the dead after he had been killed. Now, we haven't got time now to go into all the evidence that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. Now, there's plenty of it. But the most convincing evidence I find is that his 12 disciples, his 12 closest friends, after he had been put to death, were terrified wimps. They locked themselves away in a room to hide because they were scared silly. But after they'd seen him alive and after they'd received the power of the Holy Spirit, they became bold enough to preach the fact that he was alive, to tell people that he was alive, even to the point where most of them were killed for that belief. Now, if they knew in their heart of hearts that Jesus wasn't alive, that he had died and the body had been put away somewhere, buried away somewhere, out of sight, how many of them do you think would have suffered painful deaths, in many cases, for something they knew not to be true? I certainly wouldn't do that. I guess most of us wouldn't, and I don't think they would have done either. The fact that they were prepared to boldly preach that Jesus was alive, to me, convinces me that, he, that Jesus really was alive, that he came back from the dead. So the church, then, is the pillar of truth because it proclaims a living Jesus, a Jesus who is alive, a Jesus who works in the world today, who changes people's lives, who is alive and who is true because he did what he said he would do. He came back to life. Now let's go on and look at our, our last verse about the church and that's back to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32. Okay. Here Paul says, again it's Paul he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Sorry, can we go back to Ephesians chapter 5 on the slide? That's the one, yep. So, Paul is actually talking in this chapter about husbands and wives and how they should relate together. Uh, and he describes what marriage is about. And then he says, he describes uh, what marriage is, and he says, the husband and the wife will be united, the two will become one flesh. But then he throws this bombshell in. Uh, it almost is out of place because he's talking about husbands and wives, how they should live together and relate to each other. And then he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. It seems to be totally out of place. What's he saying here? What could we deduce from this verse? Well, the first thing we can learn really is that the church is an intimate relationship between people and Jesus Christ. So intimate, in fact, that the only illustration that Paul can think of 
to, to, to illustrate it, to bring it to life, is the illustration of the most intimate relationship that human beings can have, that of a man and a woman in lifelong commitment to each other based around love, solemn vows and sexual union. In other words, what marriage, that's what marriage is defined as. And that's the picture that Paul, the, the clearest picture that Paul can think about to describe the relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, as we already said, many people today seek spiritual reality. Perhaps they would all even go as far as to say they want spiritual intimacy. They want to know God personally, intimately. They want to have an experience of God. Well, here we are told they can. That we can have an experience of God. We can know God in a real and lasting way. And the expression of that is found in the relationship between the church and Jesus Christ. I said earlier that we would look at how we come to to be a Christian, how we come to be in the family of God, and we're getting close to that now. Because it means that we come into a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus. If we go back to verse 26 in this chapter... Uh, Paul tells us how that can happen. He's still talking about husbands and wives, but he says this in verse 26. Uh, He talks about, um, again, he brings the church into his discussion, and he says, it happens, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So he's saying you can come into this relationship that's like a husband-wife relationship, through washing with water and the word. What does all that mean? Does it mean I can become a Christian by having a wash and reading a book? Well, metaphorically, surprisingly, it does. That's exactly what it does mean. The washing here refers to baptism. Now, it's not just that that baptism itself cleanses you. Of course it doesn't. But it's what baptism stands for that Paul is getting at here that does the cleansing. It is the cleansing away of our sin by faith in Jesus Christ. And the word, the message here, is the message of the gospel, the word of the gospel, the message that Jesus, through his death on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin so that we could go free, so that we could receive his righteousness, so that we could have a relationship with God which he knew from the beginning. Just a page or two back, Paul wrote two of the most important verses in the Bible. Uh, They come in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Let's just flip forward to those, shall we, to the next slide. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. If ever you, uh, I was going to say, are tempted to or want to learn any Bible verses, learn these two because they are essential. They're key to uh, our whole faith. Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, this is how we can come into this relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is how we can come into that close, intimate relationship which Paul describes. It is by grace, which is God's undeserved favour, at the beginning of that chapter, chapter 2, Paul describes how, what we're like 
before God works in us to forgive us. And he says we're dead. We're dead. He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't say, well, you haven't quite come up to the mark. He doesn't say, well, you're not quite good enough. He doesn't say, well, you're not religious enough or you don't pray enough or you don't read the Bible enough or you don't go to church enough. Before you meet Christ, before Jesus forgives you, he says, you're dead, dead. And dead people can do nothing to help themselves, absolutely nothing. And I have to say that if you're a Christian here this if you're not a Christian here this afternoon, if you're not a believer this afternoon, you can do nothing to help yourself. No amount of effort, no amount of praying, no amount of seeking will actually help you because God has already done it for you through Jesus. So it is by God's grace because he's done it for you. And then it's by faith, he says. And that is the way in which we can respond to God's grace. It is by trusting in Jesus that his death paid the price, the penalty for the sin which you have committed and I have committed by leaving God out of our lives and going our own way, doing what we want. And then he says it's a gift. It's a gift. It's free. When I do the Christianity Explored courses at our church, we, we cover this and, you know, to get this idea across to people that it's a free gift is one of the most difficult things for people to understand. They cannot understand that they are being offered something free and for gratis because we are so geared in our society that we have to earn respect, we have to earn our place in society, our uh, place at work. Even from, ch- from you know, young ch- childhood we are told, you know, be good and you'll get a prize. Do this and we'll take you out to, to, for a picnic or whatever it might be. And people cannot understand, find it very hard to understand that God is offering them something free. And all they have to do is take it like a present and open it and receive it. It's a free gift. And if you receive this gift and place your trust in Jesus and enter this grace, this goodness of God by admitting that you failed God and by turning to him for forgiveness and asking for the new life which he offers you as a free gift, then his promise is that you will become a member of this intimate family, the church. You will be born into this family. You'll come to the church. Now, that may not sound very enticing. Uh, If you look at some churches, not a very enticing prospect. But I want to raise your expectations. Now, whether you've been a Christian here for many years or or you're not even there yet, I want to raise your expectations about the church by going back to Paul's illustration of marriage. Marriage is not held in very high esteem nowadays. It's been downgraded in many ways and many people don't even think it's worth bothering with. Why have a bit of paper when you can just live together anyway? But as God intended it, It is the most fulfilling of human relationships. And so the church, and consequently the Christian, is promised this relationship with Christ. And I just want to sort of finally pinpoint, uh, linking with with the marriage, what God has promised us as members of his church. 
to do with this relationship with Christ. So first of all, like marriage, it's grounded in love. It's grounded in a self-giving, costly, sacrificial love. For any marriage to work, sacrificial love from both sides has to be part of it. And Jesus, the love that Jesus showed was love to the extreme in that he gave himself on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He died an agonising death because he loved you and me so much that he wanted to take the punishment, our punishment, upon himself so that we could be free to enjoy God forever. It's grounded in love. Then secondly, like marriage, it's lifelong and permanent. That at least is the ideal for marriage. That is how marriage is set out. It is lifelong and permanent. And the Bible tells us that nothing, nothing as far, even as far as life or death itself, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This relationship that we have with Jesus, if we've come to faith in him, will see us through and beyond death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It is the most secure, lasting relationship that you could possibly be in, the relationship that you are in with Christ. Marriage is until death do us part, so the words go. Faith in Jesus is for infinity and beyond, to use another phrase. And then finally, this relationship is consummated. It is consummated in a union that's joyous, fulfilling and intensely pleasurable. And of course in marriage this is the sexual act. But for us as Christians and in the church, what does that mean? What can we relate that to? I believe it it, it equates to the worship, our worship of the Lord. Worship expressed in song, in prayer, in lives given in service to him. Worship that's fulfilling, that's joyous, that's pleasurable. Every year my family and I go to the Keswick Convention. Some of you here I know also go. Uh, We've been going for about eight to ten years now. Um, um, We book a house, a cottage, well it's not a cottage, it's a a house um, where we we take our children and grandchildren, those of us that that can come and we have a family holiday. Um, But we go to the Keswick Convention. Keswick Convention happens um, mainly in, in a big tent that holds about 3,000 people. It happens over three weeks, um, and each week uh, there are about 5,000 people in Keswick. You can't all get into the tent at the same time because there are a lot of different, other different meetings going on as well. So over the three weeks, um, there's about 15 to 20,000 Christians and people going. But when you're in that tent with 3,000 other people worshipping God, around his word being expounded, singing his praise. I tell you, there's nothing like it on earth to lift you, to fill you with joy, uh, to give you um, deep pleasure in worshipping God, um, coming to him in that situation. Worship satisfies our deepest longings by giving glory to our God and our creator. And worship will go on for eternity. We will be worshipping forever. So we better get used to it now. 
It's something we will do forever and ever around the throne of God. In uh, Revelation, in the last book of the Bible, in chapter 19, um, John saw a vision and he says this, he says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder. They had no amplifiers in those days and uh, John had to think the loudest thing he could imagine and it wouldn't be a pop group on the main stage at uh, um, the Isle of Wight or whatever. It was loud peals of thunder or a loud waterfall. That's all he could think of. The loudest thing he could could think of. And he said they were shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. Now that's the worship that's going on in heaven and that we will join one day. So Christianity is not going to church It is being born into the church by trusting Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Jesus, the Lord of the church, trusting him to rescue us from sin and bring us into this glorious new life. Well, if you're here this morning and that's uh, whetted your appetite um, to know more about how you can come into this relationship, then do have a word with uh, Ian or myself or somebody afterwards. Uh, We'd love to help you. Uh, But for the rest of us, I hope it's also whetted your appetite um, to see the church as more than just a club which we belong to, a group of friends which we meet from time to time. We are here as the body of Christ. We are here to show not just the world, but the spiritual realm, how good and loving and wise God is because he chose even people like us, failures, sinners, wrecks like many of us have been, and changed us, and lifted us up, and forgave us, and united us into a body of his people that will go on to eternity, worshipping, praising, and serving him.